Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, how are you? Welcome to The Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy, and I'm in Los Angeles. Thank you for listening. I have Louise Nealon on the program today. She is the author of a debut novel called Snowflake, critically acclaimed number one international bestseller, available now in North America from Harper Books. Snowflake is the official September pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club, the TNB Book Club. That's my monthly book club. For more on that, go to thenervousbreakdown.com. But, uh, you know, basically the way it works is you sign up for the book club, you get a book delivered to your door every month. I interview book club authors on this program, and it makes for a nice holistic experience. A few quick reminders. The Other People podcast has a YouTube channel. Did you know that? This happened over the past year, and uh, I just want to flag it. If you could subscribe to the YouTube channel, I would appreciate that. The entire archive of this podcast is now on YouTube, and it's free. Go smash the uh, subscribe button, as they say. Secondly, if you like this show and you have a few minutes uh, on your hands and you don't mind rating and reviewing this show over at Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or wherever you listen, that would be great. I would appreciate that. Apple Podcasts is probably the best place to do it if you have to pick one, that or Spotify. But if you rate and review the show, it helps the show find new listeners. I would be obliged. Lastly, I do want to remind listeners about the Patreon for this show. This is a listener-supported program. The entire archive of this podcast is available to you for free. That's more than 700 episodes and counting. Uh, If you like the program and you listen regularly and you have the means, please consider supporting it over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's patreon.com slash otherpplpod. You can support this show for as little as $1 a month. 
there are different tiers, different levels of support. As you go up the uh, scale, you can get stuff like a t-shirt, a tote bag, a coffee mug, a book club subscription. I will write you a postcard. I will wish you a happy birthday. But it will help to sustain this program into the future. And I hope that you'll consider it if you can. Once again, it's patreon.com slash other PPL pod. All right. Okay. So Louise Nealon is today's guest. Her debut novel, Snowflake, is a number one international bestseller. How about that? And it is available now from Harper, the official September pick of the TNB Book Club. Very pleased to have Louise on this program. I really enjoyed meeting her. We had a delightful conversation. I'm excited to share it with you right now. Here she is, folks. This is Louise Nealon, and her debut novel, One More Time, is called Snowflake. There's two ways that we exist, through competition and through cooperation. And there's... uh, Debbie, who is the main character in Snowflake, and she is um, balanced between these two opposing um, modes of of being in the world, with with um, Billy being her uncle, who lives in um, a garden in the back of their uh, house in a caravan, and Maeve, who believes that she can dream other people's dreams, and Debbie is is pulled in these two opposite directions. And with that, she she meets a friend in college, Xanthi, who she believes is the epitome of, of perfection. And she competes with her. She competes with the idea of her. And it's only when they find vulnerabilities in each other that they're, they're both able to find a deeper connection and and find like a bond with each other and and that's kind of what this what the what the story that I was trying to say or or um kind of create was to uh break down those those uh competitive um walls that that people create internally competition has always bummed me out I'm like a yeah. guy, you know, I'm an American uh, white guy. I'm supposed to be into competition. Like, that's what I've been told by my country <laughs> since I was born. You know, you <laughs> you compete in the marketplace and you win and, you know, all this stuff. And I'm, I've always been, and even like sports, I'm like, but somebody's got to lose. And yeah. the person who loses feels like shit. And I think, yeah. I guess, maybe people who, who are uh, less sensitive than I am are like, well, so what? <laughs> it's the way it goes. <laughs> but... You yeah. know, and, and listen, I'm not saying there should be no sports. I'm just saying that, like, by lionizing competitive prowess, we sort of lose sight of the fact that there's somebody's losing. A lot of most people are losing, uh, especially yeah. when it comes to like capitalism. Like, most people lose and suffer because of it. Like, what are we to do and that's about where that? Where the low self esteem comes from, and that's why so many people have low self esteem and anxiety and depression and. Like I, I would say that I'm quite a competitive person by nature, and, and my family is competitive. Um, and one of my favorite shows is actually the American show Survivor, um, and I love watching that because it's like 
a bunch of characters on an island and you you never know how how the story's going to turn out so i see it as like a gem of um observing human nature uh, but i i really yeah i agree like um with with even I, I, I viewed myself as a failure for so long um, during my entire 20s. And with this book, um, after publishing, I'm in a strange position where people are suddenly looking to me for advice, writing advice. And <laughs> I kind of laugh because I don't see myself as, as a success in any way. Um, and I, I'm really uh, quite nervous in interviews and quite unsure of myself. And my only sense of agency in my life really has been through writing and been through storytelling. And uh, I, I look quite young for my age um, and I'm, I'm quite self-deprecating to an uncomfortable extent. Um, and when I'm in a room by myself with characters who I see as real and who I see as kind of imaginary friends, I don't see that I have any control over the characters. They, the best part of writing is when the characters, you're running to catch up with them and they have stuff, they have stuff that you don't know. I think it was George O'Keefe that said, whether you succeed or not is irrelevant. Um, making your unknown known and always keeping the unknown beyond you is what matters. And for me, that's what I'm always chasing with writing. It's it's expanding your your consciousness and ways of of believing in in the world and, and finding the magic and I feel like competition and a capitalist society kind of narrows our our view of the of the world and and makes us skeptical and cynical um and and yeah and 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 I think the story that I'm trying to tell is is trying to reclaim some of our naivety because na like naivety like I think Billy says it in the story naive means it comes from the Latin nature to be born. So you can't help but be, be naive. We just pretend to know things, especially because of the internet now, because it's all out there. We pretend to know things. And so it, we set up crazy uh, limitations on ourselves. And it's through fiction that we kind of break through to stuff where we're not comfortable with. And it's with fiction that, like, I think that stuff like things that shame just completely goes away and things that I'm suddenly not that I wasn't able to talk about with my family um, or, or with my closest friends. I'm able to think about on the page. And and that's the same with reading. Um, when I when I sit down with someone with the soul of someone who who I, I feel like I connect with. Uh, that that's the most powerful way of of connecting in the world for me yeah i feel the same way i feel there's a lot of solace in it and i i want to stay on the topic of competition for like one more minute just because you've you've spoken of it really eloquently but you've also copped to the fact that you're very competitive and you come from a competitive family uh i often say i'm not that competitive 
And then I wonder if I'm just lying to myself because aren't human mm -hmm. beings like hardwired? I don't want to be that guy who like says he's not yeah. when he really is. But like, I really don't think I'm that super competitive. And uh, I guess it's on a spectrum. Maybe I'm like a three or a four on a 10 scale or something. So I feel like I'm not or I don't know, you know. I'm not Michael Jordan. Let's put it that way on the, you know, it's the... something that I really have to clock. Like when I, especially with my, um, my friendships with women. Um, because when you talk about perfectionism, I think there's more of a tendency to be a type A kind of person. Um, and for women, there's unrealistic, um, expectations placed on women by society and, and we're trapped in a competition with each other to impress each other, um, I think, anyways. Uh, and I think men have a similar thing, but it's not as emotional and psychically intense um, as, say, Debbie's relationship with, with Xanthi is. Maybe I'm wrong, but I, uh, I always say to uh, a woman who I see... Um, especially if she's around the same age as me with older women, I, I'm quite, um, uh, I, I would be intimidated by older women. Um, because I, I think that they just have more life experience and they see a young girl, uh, coming up and be like, well, who do you think you are? <laughs> and, uh, especially if they have experience of motherhood or whatever, whereas women around my age, I'm 30 now. All during my 20s, I clocked quite early that the friendships that I had, I had to say, I'm jealous of you in this way, or I admire this in you, but I'm, I'm also jealous and and uh, kind of expressing that and putting that out on the table was kind of like healthy for our relationship to to move forward. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that, that's what I find fascinating about uh, female friendships in particular. I really like uh, the work of Elna Ferrante and I think she just does that so, so beautifully. Um, and it's something that isn't really explored in fiction uh, to the extent that it should be because for millennia, men have been read and men have been widely read and we have this whole, um, we have this whole field of uh, female psychology that hasn't really we've only tipped the iceberg in in our um opening up of of uh a female literature yeah i feel like i feel like uh men just don't have relationships at all too often <laughs> they've, got, they've got nothing to write really? about you know i mean like these friendships <laughs> there's no connectivity at all it's like they're like watching a game together and like talking about nothing for two hours and that's it and I think part yeah. of the reason why women might have more conflict is because they're realer with one another and the relationships tend to be deeper and more meaningful and more plentiful. Like women, I just think have an easier time bonding. And I don't mean to, you know, I don't mean to overstate it because I think that men, you know, some men are great uh, at building friendships and having those kinds of uh, relationships. But, you know, I think that's the exception and not the rule, at least here in the States. I don't know what it's like in Ireland, but I'm imagining the blokes at the pub or not exactly like oh yeah it's all it's all based around sports right. sports and <laughs> like music and yeah i i 
yeah, it's 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 quite similar. And and alcohol, like they'll they'll only tell each other they love them after like a million pints. Right. Um, right. Like like Billy in the in the story or whatever. What is it about sports as some sort of like emotional bridge? It's so. I mean, listen, I love sports. I can talk sports all day long. I'm a guy, but like I also am able to recognize that there's something strange about the fact that it is like basically the last refuge of most dudes like just they have nothing to talk about except sports it's the only like lingua franca where everybody's comfortable and yeah it, that's it, be- it it becomes like a proxy for like your own failed ambitions and you know you lose a game you speak in the first person plural about your team as if you're on the team yeah 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 you know my wife always <laughs> gives me shit she's like oh you guys lost today you lost you you lost you know <laughs> oh you won i'm like we won we won you know like, yeah. but actually it goes a lot deeper in ireland anyways we have um we have national sports so we've hurling and uh football gaelic football wait what, and... what is what is hurling why do i not know this okay so hurling is uh with there's sticks involved so it's kind of like hockey but it's it's the fastest um field sport in in the world um so there's uh sticks and a, a thing called a slitter and uh so they hit i, I play camogie which is the female equivalent of it um, and we've helmets it's 15 aside and there's uh, goals and you can score points or a goal um and it's very hard to explain i would i would recommend looking up um hurling on on youtube um, and especially there's a specific american responding to to hurling that is hilarious <laughs> uh, it's probably what i'm most proud of being irish um having hurling as a sport Football is very similar, but it's not it's not similar at all. But in terms of emotional um, connection, like Mayo uh, is a county in Ireland and they lost the All-Ireland final yesterday for the millionth time. And and people see it as a curse, like the Mayo curse and the curse is going to be broken. And then and then they lost again. And the whole county is just depressed like <laughs> so like so fundamentally like not well and there was banks giving out loans for people to go to them to be able to afford to go to the match and I think men especially are so repressed in Ireland that if you give them like sport is their is their language like even men who don't like sport always know what what's going on in each sport so that they have some sort of foothold in in the emotional landscape of of the psyche of, of the country yeah <laughs> it's it's incredible no yeah. we have we have exact parallels for that i mean for years it was boston the red sox this baseball team had a curse and you know whenever there's a team that hasn't won the championship in a long time they'll take on this sort of guise of you know we're cursed and there's something there's a darkness you know over us or whatever and uh i read and have talked before on this show once or twice about this theory it's like a theory of the case with regard to why men, and in particular, I think, like like working class men, but not just, you know, just any man who feels maybe d- disempowered in his life in some way or not in f- control to the degree that he wished that he would. Uh, I'm thinking in particular about politics. You know, like if you feel mm-hmm. disenfranchised in some way, 
um, like sports becomes an arena where you can experience like the success of a team by proxy, uh, you know, and then all the memorization of statistics and player names and team history and the politics within the league and the rules of the game and all the ways in which sports fans kind of fanatically obsess about their teams. You know, the, the, thing that I'm recalling that I read, which I, of course, I can't remember where it was or who wrote it was basically talking about like, imagine if that same, uh, fanaticism and devotion and energy were channeled into say the public square, you know, keeping, (laughs) keeping track of like the, the comings and goings of legislators and what they're up to and, you know, what they're doing on your behalf or not. And, you know, it's a, it's a weird, like, it's a weird place for all of this psychic energy to go yeah. and it's very common yeah. from it's not just like an american phenomenon it's not just an irish phenomenon no. it's a global no, thing it's so universal but yeah. in the same way it's like it's competition and also cooperation and it's us and them and it's the balance of you know the the universal sort of identity at, like but as a team so you're local i don't i don't know if i'm making any sense no but, you are and yeah. i'm thinking too you know just the ways in which uh like sports functions i think as a kind of it's like the original reality tv Uh, oh yeah you know because you can like if you don't understand a game like i could watch hurling and it would probably take me a while to figure it figure it out i need to well you need to understand the rules of the game in order to be able to enjoy being a spectator yeah Uh, but once you have that then you can start to enjoy it i think and if you're watching a sport that you understand and it's a good game, especially if there are stakes, however imaginary those stakes may be, you know, these, yeah. cha- these championships, like the, you know, somebody wins the, like the American football championship and it's like, we're world champions. And you're like, well, you know, who says it's becomes like kind of silly to, uh, yeah. you know, the language games that people play, but whatever, like you get invested in it and, I like the fact that it is this human drama unfolding in real time with stakes that mean a lot to all of the participants and all, most all of the spectators. Uh, and yeah. if you're why it can be riveting television. I don't know. I mean, I'm sure you've watched a hurling match and been totally like locked in on it. And absolutely. Yeah. But it is storytelling. Like you're buying into it. There's a suspension of disbelief. Like if some, if someone comes in and they don't know the rules of the game and they don't know the stakes, it's just like what the hell what's going on like and why do we care so much whereas like you're like you don't know (laughs) it's like someone coming into a series like i remember um my friend came around we're watching lost uh, when i was like 14 and she came around and she was like why is everyone so involved like why do you care so much and you're kind of like you don't know you don't know my life (laughs) yeah you're just like you're just invested and we got to be invested in stuff. Oh, yeah. Otherwise, what's the point? You know? Otherwise, what's the point? Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. 
He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hey, everybody. This is Brad Listy, the host of the Other People podcast. If you're like me and if you love George Saunders, you're not going to want to miss this. As a literary podcaster and a devoted reader and a fan of the arts, I try to do my best to support the public humanities. That's why I hope that you'll join me in attending Humanities New York's annual benefit event this year. Join New York Times number one best-selling author George Saunders, a past guest on the Other People podcast. He will be in conversation with author and professor Imani Perry for Humanities New York's third annual History and the American Imagination Benefit. The live discussion will take place online on October 5th at 7 p.m. Eastern. Purchase your tickets at humanitiesny.org and use the offer code OTHERPEOPLE, other PPL and get half-off membership tickets. That's humanitiesny.org, and use the offer code OTHERPPL. All right? I'll see you there. I can't stop. I mean, I've, I like to critique myself sometimes for being, like, that guy who's into sports, but, like, I love sports. It's okay. You're to not competitive, a... though. But I'm not. I mean, I like to play, but I don't care who wins. I never – I mean, maybe I did when I was a kid. I could get into it. Like when I was playing right. uh, what we call soccer, you know, here in the States, you call football. Like yeah. I played and I could get into it. I think like I had some of that. But ultimately, it was just like, I don't care. Like it's okay. Like afterwards, I was fine. And like I think sometimes I can be frustrating to friends of mine who have a different orientation towards their fandom than I do because I'll be kind of intellectualizing the game as it's happening I don't wear a lot of gear. I'm not a gear person. I don't get the jersey and like I'm not doing that. But I will sit there and I like like this is going to sound sort of uh snotty. But I like the intellectual st- I like the stim like it's mentally stimulating for me to watch a game unfold that I really understand the mechanics of, like the strategy and seeing how the coaches are making changes. Like I love that part of it. And then I can also be I think sometimes maybe too uh clinical when my team is losing, like not emotional enough. Do you know what I'm saying? Oh yeah. And like yeah. my friends but, are like, my friends were like, you know, on board and I'm like, no, they've, you know, they're because losing. Because they've, they've more invested emotionally, whereas you're, you're taking an intellectual standpoint. <laughs> that's kind of like protecting you on some level. Maybe that's what it is. I, I, I'm too scared to care. I'm scared of how much I care. Maybe I don't want to get hurt again, Louise. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so anyway, you know, 
it's uh you know that part of irish culture is in your book you know there are hurlers and i mean it's not a it's not like a central feature but you definitely touch upon it and other things that i think are endemic to irish culture that are themes in the book that you're working on and wanting to explore and correct me if i'm wrong or feel free to add anything that i've missed would be mental health uh we've you know you said the word repression earlier which i think is sort of uh universal but might have you know might be more of a thing in ireland and especially among irish men um substance abuse which is like the irish national one of the irish national pastimes at least in popular culture um promiscuity and i think promiscuity as it relates to church life right and the ideas around um like sexual behavior uh, as it is um, defined by the Catholic Church, is that a fair way, or maybe just churches in general? I don't know about that. Uh, like, there's religion in the book, but it's used as uh, it's used. I I wouldn't relate to the promiscuity of Maeve to to religious religious shame or anything like that. What about and think... what about Debbie though, the main character? Because like she's got this thing where she's and for people listening who might not have had a chance to read. Um, I'm going to do a quick like thumbnail just to get people oriented. Snowflake tells the story of a protagonist named Debbie White. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Debbie White. And she lives on a farm about 40 minutes or 40 miles outside of uh, Dublin. I guess it would be kilometers in Ireland. So not far from Dublin, but out on the farm in the sticks, as we stay, uh, as we say in the States. And she goes off to Trinity College in Dublin. So we meet this character at this transitional moment in her life. Um, and it's a coming of age story and it's a campus novel if you wanted to kind of reduce it um, to like standard categories. Um, and she is, what, 18 years old and a college freshman and is making out with, she makes out with a lot of guys, but she doesn't sleep with a lot of guys. And so I guess maybe yeah. that's what I, I was wondering if there was some sort of echo of like, catholic guilt i'm i was raised catholic so you know maybe I'm yeah. pro- maybe i'm projecting here louise but no, i no no that's interesting okay because yeah there's generational trauma from catholicism in in ireland and um, because the catholic church was aligned with the state um and there is just so much there was so much power given to the Catholic Church in Ireland. It was synonymous with with the state at one stage. And for a long time, um, contraception was illegal in Ireland. So with with Debbie, yeah, she she would um, she thinks that like sleeping with people or being sexually active, uh, she thinks of that as as dirty. Um, and uh, slovenly and uh, she kind of has a, a complicated relationship that she's she's been handed down um, so and I, it's it very much speaks to real life in Ireland that we're quite liberated now in that most of Irish people now wouldn't be practicing Catholic um, oh really there's Oh yeah, so like I'd say 80% of um people who identify as Roman Catholic in Ireland are lapsed. They don't go to church. 
Um, and where the church would still have a stronghold would be in rural areas. Uh, and that would be as a as a tradition. It's seen as a cultural thing to go to mass um, right. to catch up with the neighbors. And a lot of people would go. Um, they would raise their kids Catholic, baptize them, communions, confirmations as a as a cultural thing. Um, but as soon as we grow up and, and reach a certain age, um, people just stop stop going to mass. And and it is at that pivotal moment where you're about eighteen that uh, people have a decision whether to like go to mass or not. Um, but uh, the, there's a shame around um, sexuality, especially um, with female sexuality in in Ireland. Um, and we've just recently uh, legalized uh, abortion. Um, right, just as I the United read... just as the United States is trying to roll it back. Like I don't know if you heard yeah. that news, but yeah, yeah, it's it's such a such a crazy time. Like I'm very very proud to be Irish, and we're the first state that um, legalized uh, gay marriage through referendum through through public vote as well um so i i'm really proud of that and we've become so progressive from where we were um because there was a point not my so my parents would have grown up in a in an ireland that was completely controlled by uh, the catholic church and we're very much the first generation coming out of that and so there's a there's some sort of um, backlash against it. People are very angry about um, the um, um, ch- child abuse and stuff that has uh, has come to light, um, and also the mother and baby homes. Um, Wait, what is where that? There, so there, there's laundries, Magdalene laundries, where uh, women who conceived children out of wedlock were sent to, and it was they were basically prisons. So. The children would would be born in the libraries. The the women would be, um, they'd be pregnant, working in the laundries. And uh, when they had their children, the children were put up for adoption um, straight away. And uh, the women were were shamed into silence, basically. And then they'd go back. They'd have a chance to go back to their normal life. But they'd just given births. And it was usually the local priest who would arrange for the women to be sent away, you know. Um, and so so that's the sort of cultural um, or psychological um, landscape that Debbie is, is dealing with. Right. Um, and actually, there's a great... Um, biography at the minute uh Sinead O'Connor I'm not sure if you know her she's uh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I actually no I read I love Sinead O'Connor um right I mean I shouldn't she, I don't divi- want to... she, she divides opinion um no but I but... want to say I read and shared in my newsletter a profile of Sinead O'Connor in the New York Times a couple of months ago yeah it was kind of like a, a new a recent profile like what's she up to now kind of giving and I felt such affection for her she was so horribly mistreated after she ripped up that photo of the Pope on Saturday Night Live and demonized. And she was right. She was she was protesting 
as I understood it, she was protesting child sexual abuse um, yeah. in the as, church. As a victim of as a victim of uh, of abuse herself. Right. And she was given a voice to kids that she didn't have. Uh, and she's a great memoir, actually. She's a brilliant writer. Mm-hmm. Um, she's a great memoir. It's just released recently. I forget what it's called. Rememberings. That's what it's called. And it's the last book that I, I picked up and I didn't stop reading it from from the minute I picked it up. I wonder, um, you, I wonder if I can get her on this show. You think she would talk to me? <laughs> <laughs> if, 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 yeah, definitely. If well, I could well, track her George down. George Saunders on and Maggie Nelson. So right. yeah, definitely DM her. Yeah. I will. She's on, I... She's on Twitter. Okay. Do. I'm gonna Do d- I'm going to DM Sinead. I feel like, Here's what I feel yeah. like. I feel like what reading that profile and I'm sure what reading the book is a reminder of is that it's a very um, important to remember that a lot of times in really heated cultural moments in particular or just like um, volatile moments in history, there will be certain people who speak out and who are shut down because of it or shouted down or villainized or, you know, called crazy, um, you know, all the different labels that we, you know, saw kind of affixed to her in that time. Those people are often the ones who are telling the truth. Not always, not always, but often. And it's important, especially when there's a lot of like, you know, volatile energy in a culture or in a cultural moment to keep your wits about you and to make sure that you don't, because it could be, you know, I, I think back on it, I mean, I guess I was a kid, so I don't want to penalize myself too much, but I'm not sure. I don't remember being pissed off at her, but I also don't remember like vocally coming to her defense in the way that I, you know, we like to imagine ourselves in heroic uh, terms. It would have been the right thing to do looking back. So I don't yeah, know. Yeah, but we were just, we were just a bit behind in our thinking right. and that's what made it so difficult for her to speak the truth that she knew and another really important Irish writer who did that was Edna O'Brien um who really she actually had to leave Ireland because uh her her books were burned by parish priests and which I should say is all you know we we don't uh, obviously we don't do not support book burning, but a, for a writer's career, it's not the worst thing in the world to have your book burned. Like they all, kind... all of the really cool Irish male writers at the time were so jealous that like her books were being burned. <laughs> right, she's such a badass. She's still alive today, and she's a a literary hero of mine. Um, and she really spoke uh, truths to power. Um, when she uh had the chance and she wasn't there was a there was a recent new yorker profile on her actually that was a bit snarky and uh the backlash was such that uh ireland came to her defense finally nice. <laughs> so we did a whole like circle and um and and we're finally like claiming her as as our own because the new yorker guy was like uh uh, oh, she thinks she's the queen of Ireland or whatever. And we're like, yeah, yeah, she is. <laughs> because she she brought us out of a really dark, dark place and uh, gave women a voice in Ireland when we really didn't have one. And she had to escape to, to London after that. Hmm. And uh, and her, her husband was extremely jealous of her. He was a publisher. 
And once he found out that she was able to write, he said, he read her manuscript and he said, you can write and I'll never forgive you. And that the marriage didn't last long after that. And she left in the middle of the night. Um, Seems like a nice guy. She, yeah, yeah. Jeez. <laughs> but she's speaking of, speaking her, of speaking of competition, my God, you know. <laughs> her her interviews online, you can look her up online. She's incredible. She's a force. I want to say she was a talking head in that. Uh, there's like a, a long form documentary, like a two or three part documentary on Ernest Hemingway, that aired on like public television in the United States this past year. You know, Ken Burns is that filmmaker. Yeah. Like the, yeah. the slow zooms on like an old photograph, you know, with the narration. But I want to say she was in that. I could be mistaken, but I... She could be. Yeah. She did a book on Joyce as well. She, okay. She's really... Yeah. Okay. So we've talked about hurling. We've talked about the church and, um, you know, sexual mores and cultural shifts in Ireland, which are not the primary concern of your book in an overt way. Like they're not front and center, but I'm still glad that we're talking about them because what we're talking about, I think is the underpinnings of the world that Deb is in. And, you know, we've touched on the kind of uh, thumbnail uh, of the plot and I want to make sure to um, illuminate for readers that Deb not only comes from um, a farm family, and is now at Trinity College, which is like the the Harvard of Ireland. Is that a way to put it? Like it's like the best college in Ireland or elite? Or... Uh, yeah, but like there's also like a <laughs> trainers for winners is, is the attitude towards like there's always a begrudgery around. Uh, like if you get into Harvard in, in America, everyone's like, oh, yeah, go you. Where if, if you get into Trinity in, in Ireland, everyone's like, Ugh, what's wrong with you? Like. <laughs> Right. There's a little bit of that. You I think, think you're better than everybody else. No, but there's yeah. a little bit of backlash, I think, with the Ivy League and with uh, these schools. Right. Maybe it's maybe, I don't know. It's a little of both, but I'm sure there's plenty of it under people's breath, you know, when uh, somebody goes off to, or it's not necessarily that somebody goes there. It's when somebody like leads with it. Like I graduated from. Yeah. That's that is, of... But like with Ivy League schools, like the fees are ridiculous and like it, it would cost the same to go to Trinity as it would to go to uh, another university in, in Ireland. So it's, it's different in that sort of way. It's yeah. affordable. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, that's a novel concept. Yeah. These private <laughs> schools too. These private schools with their, like, I mean, Harvard, just to let me like bitch a little bit in this sidebar. It has like a multi-billion dollar endowment. It could easily make tuition free for all of its students. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet, I, and I, I know they subsidize a lot of students, but it's ridiculous that uh, anybody would have to pay whatever, the, you know, 75 grand a year or whatever they have to pay to go there. It's, a, it's nonsense. Yeah, we like in, Trinity doesn't charge, charge that. It's, there's free education in Ireland. So it's not, it's not free, free, but like you, I, it's a couple of grand a year, you know. Yeah. I feel like I'm, I mean, I, I have, I am capable of like uh, indulging in like real estate fantasies all over the world. I was thinking about Italy last night. I was like, wow, what would life be like just on some sort of like Tuscan farm? And, you know, I'm constantly like dreaming of, uh, you know, going somewhere and escaping. Yeah. (laughs) But I got to say, and maybe I'm wrong, but I got to say that like England and Ireland and Scotland I'm kind of bullish on them. I'm I'm bullish on Ireland, not only because it's coming out of this, like like I think there's something vital and vibrant about a culture 
that is, as Ireland seems to be right now, you know, per your description, it's kind of coming out of this phase where the church was aligned with the state and there were a lot of, there's a lot of corruption and bad behavior and confusion and maybe waking up from that. It's an interesting time to be in a place. And then you couple that with the fact that I think Ireland, you know, is this like well positioned as any like chunk of land on the planet with regard to climate change. It's not going to be like 120 (laughs) degrees there, you know, uh, again, we're dealing in Fahrenheit here, but whatever the math is, uh, Celsius, like it's, uh, it seems like there will be rain though, as long, as long as you're prepared for rain. Well, listen, I live in the desert where we got no rain in Los Angeles right now. So like I take rain We're we're all dying for rain. So maybe you're in the right spot, you know, it's gonna... what you wish for. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so anyway, you're, you're writing about, um, this young woman who's coming of age, going off to college, making this big cultural shift from the farm to Trinity and mm-hmm. who not only, I think maybe is a bit of an outlier for most freshmen or first year students at Trinity um, because of her rural upbringing, but also comes from an unorthodox family. You know, you touched on Maeve, the mother who had Deb when she was a teenager, I believe. So this is a mother daughter relationship between like a 36 year old mom and an 18 year old daughter, just to kind of, uh, put a chronology on it and then there's the uncle billy who's a great character who lives in a you said a caravan behind the house which i think is just like a airstream trailer right it's like a camper or some sort or oh yeah i I didn't i didn't realize you didn't have caravans over there um yeah yeah it's like a camper but it's like on it has no wheels it's like on blocks yeah so i think we would call that like a trailer or like an airstream or there are different words airstream's a brand but i you know just to make sure people stay oriented um so he's living kind of behind the house there. He's kind of a surrogate father figure for Deb mm-hmm. and is kind of a, um, has a drinking problem, but is entirely lovable and is also very bright and learned in his way. Um, I don't know, just a great, vivid, lovable character. So she's coming from this family situation, and now she's mixing with kids like uh, Xanthi, who is more... Uh, well, like you say posh in Ireland, how would you put it? Like, yeah. Yeah. She's like the posh friend. <laughs> yeah. And so like from a setup standpoint. Sophisticated. Yes. Sorry. Yeah. Like or cosmopolitan, you know? Yeah. So, very much so from a setup standpoint, I feel like this is fairly traditional architecture for a campus novel and a coming of age novel. Like you have these pieces in place and um that's not a criticism it's just an observation and there's really only so many ways to skin the cat if you're going to be telling a story about somebody going off to college but this book uh is memorable and feels new for reasons that i'm still trying to um define for myself i think it has something to do with how lived in it feels, you know, you, you come from a farm family. I know that from talking to you before we got started, I get the sense as I'm reading that a lot of this stuff is close to the bone in the way that it often is for fiction writers. Um, I never want to presume that you're not like working far afield, but I think you're, there's some autobiographical elements in there. Is that fair to say? Yes and no. Uh, I, I'm often miss mistaken for for debbie so every second interview i do <laughs> people call me debbie or they call debbie louise 
Um, I haven't done also, that. I haven't done that yet, though. No, no, you haven't. You okay. haven't. No. But there's still props. time. <laughs> props. Yeah. And and also, I I feel quite bad. My family are really um supportive. Uh, and my mother especially she's my first reader and the the mom in in debbie's debbie's story is Maeve is a bit mental and so everyone everyone assumes that that my mother is slightly unhinged <laughs> and she's been so great about it i like i cannot thank her enough for just like especially in Ireland because people talk in Ireland and like the neighbors have read the book and stuff and but yeah like uh Debbie's family situation is very different to mine but the elements of the farming background is true like uh, the details um are, are like I've basically scooped out my family and thrown in characters that are like my invisible friends like and and Debbie very much started off as a, as an avatar of my 18-year-old self. Like her uh, first day in university was similar to mine. And so she only really came to life for me when she started doing things that I wouldn't necessarily do. Or um, and, and that's where the story really took off for me. Um, and I remember when I first sent... Uh, there's a proof going around the family and my uncle Joe rang me and he was like, yeah, Louise, like, um, well done, like, it's great or whatever, but, uh, Jesus, would you not send her off to New York or somewhere or just get it, get a bit away from, from, you know, your own life. And, and he was quite, uh, concerned for the next book because he was like, well, it's, it's taken you 10 years to write this one. So do you have to like, wait 10 years to live so you can like scoop out like all of the details of that life and throw different characters in and he was so worried for me and, and frazzled um and kind of uh, a bit uh dubious of the whole uh fiction writing uh ability that I had because he was kind of like sure it's just the stuff from our lives really <laughs> <laughs> And you're like, hey, if it takes me another ten years, that's fine. I mean, exactly. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Right. <laughs> but uh, yeah. So there's raw material there, and the details are definitely raw material. Um, but where I find it interesting, and where the book sparks for me, is not in the bits where it's close to the bone for me, but actually in in the bits where I actually have no idea what what's going on. But yes, with with like the farm descriptions and and being slightly um lost in a city it it comes down to to autobiographical experience sure uh, you know it's funny that you talk about this book taking 10 years to write because it reads uh beautifully and quickly that was my experience of it it goes down easy um yeah. and it, ha it gives the impression that you wrote it quickly like not in a rush or like carelessly but just like i, I don't know it's like ah oh, this is lived in it just it's easy for me to trick myself when I'm reading a good book. I'm like, this just shot out of her. Like, oh, you know, you know, but no, it took 10 years of labor and kind of working through the story and figuring out the world and the characters to get it to where it was that familiar. Yeah, absolutely. And like, I, I write quite slowly. Um, and I, f I find writing very difficult. Uh, so it's really 
uh, a big compliment when people say that it, it was easy to read um, because it, was, it wasn't easy to write. Um, and I really wish that it was easy to write. Um, but yeah, I'm that's something that I'm probably most proud of about the book that like my dad was able to read it say and and he found stuff in it that like spoke to him like he he's not a reader he doesn't like I think the last book that he read was like a a sports autobiography right right (laughs) and he communicates in he communicates in sport and also farming and I've I've kind of like a reputation around the farm as being the fairy, the one that doesn't really contribute much and um, is kind of like the one that's not around when things need to be done on the farm. So seeing that I kind of connected to the farm, at least on an imaginary level, (laughs) came as quite a shock to him. Right. Uh, And I think it was a pleasant, a pleasant surprise. So while there's things in the book that, like I look at the book and I am proud of it, but I see it as like a flawed thing and like a failed experiment. I definitely do. Um, but the the fact that it's there in the first place is is something that's quite like miraculous to me. And um, and I, I I really I had to come home to write it as well. I I don't think I could have written it anywhere else. Interesting. Uh, so yeah. So um, yeah, that's it. And it took you 10 years. You're 30 years old, you said, right? So mm-hmm. you started this book when you were 20? 18, actually, I had, I had the idea. Um, and it's the reason I became a writer, because I was so interested in in the idea uh, that I I chased it. And well, What was the seedling? Part... What was the seedling? You say you're interested right. in the idea. What was the idea? Okay, right. So, <laughs> um, so I dropped out of college. Uh, I had a very similar first date to Debbie when she went to university, and uh, I, I came home and I was like, I can't go back. Um, and I was quite burnt out from the leaving cert. Is is the um, last year of college that we do to get into university, and it's quite stressful in Ireland. Uh, and I was burnt out from that, and I got very depressed and down. Um, and I sort of slept a lot and I had this really weird dream that I, I woke up from in the middle of the night and it felt like it wasn't, I, it felt like it didn't belong to me. And it's kind of embarrassing admi- admitting that. Um, and it wasn't like a, it wasn't like a really dramatic dream <laughs> and it wasn't something that was, uh, suited for for fiction or whatever it was the feeling that I felt I felt like I had the contents of my head belong to somebody else and that felt like a violation and so I went to uh, my GP my parents were worried about me and he was asking me how I was sleeping and I was like oh well I had this really weird dream and so he um, referred me to a psychologist for a more expensive conversation and the psychiatrist put me on antidepressants and didn't really engage in in the whole <laughs> dream delusion. Um, and I just thought that that I, I kept on thinking about it. And the reason why I was so afraid was because I felt like the the stuff in the dream was um, it belonged to a man, and uh, and that was very clear to me. Was it about sports? Uh, 
(laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Mayo lost the All-Ireland again. (laughs) (laughs) And so I was like, because I couldn't really talk about it or people thought that people, they didn't ridicule it because they didn't actually engage with it at, at all. And I felt just really alone with it and a bit crazy. And I thought that the only way uh, to kind of explore it or ex- express that fear and kind of face it somehow was through writing about it. And I kind of thought that it'd be a great idea for a novel. Uh, so f- I was like, okay, I'm going to write a novel about it. Uh, a woman who dreams other people's dreams, a girl who dreams other people's dreams. And that was the the concept. And then as soon as uh, I started writing the characters just kind of like took off and they didn't really care about that concept at all. (laughs) Um, And it was ruining the story because like you said, it is basically a college campus story. It's basically like a a coming of age novel, but I didn't know that at the time. And I kept on trying to impose the dream onto, onto the story uh, to such an extent that I had to use Maeve, the character of Maeve as a scapegoat basically and give her all of that dream obsession nonsense um so i could get on with the rest of telling the rest of the story um and and so the dreams basically are uh they're they're what i would change if i if i went back and had another shot at it i'm i would change how they inflect on on the story and they're uh, and, and one of my friends said, Louise, you need to let go of the dreams. <laughs> they're, they're not serving the story anymore. Uh, it's great that you had this like concept, but like this is basically egoism now that you're you're still holding on to this concept, even though you have a perfectly good story like that's like set apart from it. But for me, that was the concept. That was the heart of the story. And I really wanted to honor the source of it. So even though it is when people ask me, like, what was the original um, idea or the original concept? I'm qu- kind of embarrassed uh, that I have to go into delve into this story of, oh, yeah, I had someone else's dream when I was 18 and nobody believed me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I can't not say it as well, um, because it is it is embarrassing it's like someone asks you like how did you get conceived or whatever and it's <laughs> it's not like you know it's not like the magical thing that you expect it to be it's it's just like it's something kind of like funny and a bit weird what and... was the what was the content of the dream did you say no no and i i i i can't really remember it oh okay that, that... I can't remember it. I can just remember the feeling. Okay. That I had. So, so. there's a lot to unpack here. There's a lot of use. <laughs> I think there's a lot of useful lessons actually in this. The first of which is that if you're out there and you're listening and you're struggling to think of a great idea for a novel, but you want to write one, step one is to become incredibly depressed and sleep for 14 <laughs> hours a night. Yeah. And if you'll have some sort of uh, epiphany in your sleep potentially. Uh, and Absolutely. then you know and obviously that's not a joke though that's not a joke people ask me for writing advice all the time and i'm literally the worst person to ask for advice because my sisters laugh they're 
because I was trying to give like heartfelt advice to people and they're like, Louise, you wake up in the morning, you have a cry, you play with your niece, you have a nap, <laughs> then you, you might wake up and write a couple of sentences. Like that, that's the whole perceived notion of, of people like, oh, you, you did it. You're a success. Tell me, tell me your secret. And you're like, <laughs> I hibernated for 10 years. Well, and like... <laughs> no. And, and, you know, I, I like to joke, but I think there is something to be said for, obviously there's a long, like storied history uh, of the relationship between the creative impulse and mental illness, you know, like de being depressed and writing a novel kind of go hand in hand. Um, maybe not the whole way through, but often at like a point of genesis or at some point or multiple points along the way. And I think that maybe in American culture, I don't know how much of this uh, has seeped into Ireland, but when we get sick here, it's all about like powering through it and sort of like being proud of your immune system. I never get sick. I've only been sick once in seven years. I only need five yeah. hours of sleep a night. It's like competitive. Productivity. Yeah. Competitive stressing is what I call it. You know, yeah. where you get like competitive over how stressed out you are and how exhausted you are and how strong you are. And, um, I think that if you're feeling sick or unwell, there is wisdom that is replicated throughout the animal kingdom. <laughs> Uh, in just lying down and resting. Why do we not do this? You know, like if, an, if a dog or a cat or a squirrel or a coyote is injured, they just go lie down. They don't yeah. start talking about how they're going to get up to the next morning and go out and herd sheep or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Like it's a ridiculous human thing to do. Or go to, to the do. gym. Or go to the gym or whatever we do. Or be. I'm going to get my thousand words anyway, even though I have pneumonia, you know, and it's like all this nonsense. And so maybe there is something to it. You know, you rested and you clearly needed it. And I get that. Like I had a similar, not exactly similar, but, um, you know, I was, I was similarly exhausted at the end of high school and I didn't really care to go to college. I was like not interested in applying. I was over it. I was so sick of going to school. That's how I felt. Like how many yeah. times do I have to study for the test and take the test and get an A on the test or whatever you get on the test, you know? And just that process for, you know, for the first 18 years of my life. And then I got to now apply to go do more of this. Like I was just burnt. Yeah. And I think that, uh, you know, I think a lot of people feel that way. I'm a big fan of the gap year for that reason. I think that a lot of people need a gap year to go like rest, you know, Absolutely. Or, or do something else. I would have benefited from that, I think. But, um, so anyway, I, I think it makes there's some there's some wisdom I think in the fact that you slept. It wasn't just, you know, you being laziness, lazy, right? <laughs> um, another thing that I think we need to talk about is the ways in which creative epiphanies happen, which are often are not as cinematic as we wish they were, you know. Um, and you know, in this case, this is fairly cinematic. You had like this crazy dream that felt like it came from somebody else's head. That's interesting. And that is like a whole like high concept idea. But what I think is most instructive about it is the fact that you had this experience and then acted on it. It was powerful enough to you as a creative person to get you started writing a novel, which in some way lifted you out of your depression, or at least, you know, got you on that path to productivity and, and to not sleeping all the time. But then 
there came a point of departure where the original conceit and this seedling that you, that was delivered to you in your dreams lost its centrality in the narrative. And I think what's most instructive is the fact that you went with it. You trusted the story instead of trying to shoehorn this initial notion into the, into the center of it. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, I think sometimes we get mm -hmm. very, we get very wed to that initial idea and we don't let the, the story function as an organism that evolves and maybe has like a life and a mind of its own. And so yeah. I think it's a, it's a useful thing to point out to people listening who might be trying to write a book that sometimes you have to let go a little bit. Absolutely. I think that there's, um, there's a, a guy, um, a philosopher called John Moriarty in Ireland, and he's a book called Dreamtime. And he quoted a uh, scientist, C.H. Uh, Waddington, I think is his name. <laughs> and he said, nature doesn't aim, it plays. And I think that's really uh, great advice for writing as well, because you can aim all you want, but how the story is going to come is by you sitting with the words and playing around with them. And no matter how much you aim towards something, or it's great to have something to aim towards. Um, you can't drag something out. It's it's always going to come organically from um, from the energy that that you create. So well, and I think like, too, like what what it's making me think of is you know, you're sitting there and playing with the words, as you said. Mm -hmm. You can't play unless you're sitting there. <laughs> Um, Absolutely. so it's like an old adage, you know, in, in craft books and, you know, people talking about writing, it's like, you gotta show up. Yeah. And if you like that Stephen King on writing where he's like, the muse is like that really stoned guy who, uh, he's like the stone guy that never shows up to the appointment and you have to be the one that you sit in the basement and you wait for him to come and he might never show up or he might show up like once in a, once a week for like 20 minutes but you have to be there um for whenever he might like wander into the room and i think i think that's great yeah for, uh, a great analogy i i agree and i think for anybody listening who might be skeptical you know you start talking about the muse and stuff and sometimes people can roll their eyes <laughs> but i think if you've ever written a book and you go back and reread it which you have to do you know, when you're in the editorial process, but also I think sometimes, you know, you might pass the bookshelf and pick up your own book and be like, what did I say again? And no, you don't do that. You're terrified <laughs> no. of your own book. <laughs> no, I'm just embarrassed. <laughs> yeah. Well, but I, okay. Embarrassed, totally understandable. But I think sometimes too, a little bit like, like, um, weirded out or like, what, like, where did this come from? Uh, so I'm just trying to say that like, sometimes you can look back on your book. If you ever want evidence of there actually being this kind of stone guy, who's never on time for the appointment slash muse, go back and reread something that you've published and you'll undoubtedly be like, wow, where, what, who was this person who wrote this thing? It's not all you, I guess is the point. Like there's something else happening. Yeah. Uh, if you show up enough and you do the work. Yeah. But also like you're playing with your unconscious as well. So it is you and everything is you, you know, and like 
there's so much that we don't know about the world outside of us, but there's also so much that we don't know about ourselves. And I think that's the reason why most people are afraid to write. They're afraid about what's going to come out. They're afraid of what other people will think, but also they're afraid of what's going, what they're going to discover about themselves and all of the uncomfortable stuff. Um, and and the judgment sets in way too early. Your inner critic comes in, like Judge Judy being like, well, that's not great or that's that's shameful or you shouldn't write about that and get a real job. Right. <laughs> and and for, for so many people, I think the reason I'm a writer is not because I'm the best writer even in my zip code. You know, the reason that I'm a writer is because I... I'm able through years of practice to shut down that voice that says, what are you doing? What, like, why, why are you doing this? Um, and I think like there's no such thing as like intrinsic, um, talent or whatever. It's, it's just, um, it's just practice and it's, it's practice in an emotional, uh, labor. Um, there, and there's so much energy that goes into writing that is emotional. It's not your your typical nine to five day. It's it's a vocation in in a way. Um, and I'm never off the clock. I'm always thinking about the fictional world that I inhabit as as much as my daily world. And I know that's a very like woo woo thing to say, um, but. It's true, and it's it's true for me. So uh, I love I love that description. That makes perfect sense to me. I'm also wondering who lives in your zip code. Can we start some sort of competition here? <laughs> <laughs> Who's in your zip? Who are you clocking in your zip code? Oh, lady. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that's it. Like, sorry. Like my like I had a, I had a conversation with a friend um the other day that she she writes about her maternal lineage and and mental health. And she was saying that I write to express the things that my grandmother wasn't able to say or didn't have the opportunity to say. And I think like I'm just really lucky to be able to be given the time and space uh, to express some of the things that my ancestors never really got to think about or explore. It's a rich way to live. And it's a pain in the ass to do. I'm speaking for myself. Maybe you feel oh, it. Yeah. But I mean, uh, I think that there is something um, like beneficial to my mental health that is connected to writing. Like the hard, that emotional labor that you talked about, like going through it. I've never done a lot of talk. I've never done, I've done talk therapy once, but it feels like it performs a similar function for me. I mean, it's not to say that I wouldn't benefit from therapy, but I go in and I'm sort of excavating um, my life and experiences and uh, difficult emotional stuff in the writing um, yeah. and finding expression and trying to kind of get a, get a hold on it and draw it into focus. That's basically the same thing you're doing when you're talking it out with somebody. Maybe not exactly the same, but you know what I mean? Like, I don't know. I just, I guess I'm just saying that like, even though like monetary rewards are usually very limited in the world of literature 
and even in you know cultures that have really peripheralized books and literature you know and and focused more on other media you know you might not get the kinds of rewards that come with say making a pop music album or something but that work the work itself i mean it sounds kind of cliche but the work itself being its own reward is i think a real thing you know like it uh it delivers a lot of uh a lot of rewards in that way is my experience yeah yeah but, but i would be i'd be reluctant to say that writing is therapy for me uh just because it's not monitored you know mm. it's just me with i don't tr like i don't trust my thoughts <laughs> and uh when i'm but but having said that when when you write fiction you tap into a place that isn't really you um you em you're able to empathize with a person that isn't you so like when i'm writing debbie i'm maybe dealing with my own issues but i'm dealing it through the vehicle of of the other um and so you're able to kind of like detach your your own I'm not sure if I'm making any sense, but no, you are. And I mean, uh, you're, you're making me think, to, but I mean, you're making me think like, again, my experience is limited here, but like in talk therapy, you're kind of otherizing yourself in a way by talking mm -hmm. about, you know, you're, you're objectifying yourself and your behaviors and your emotions in the presence of this like guide. And I think yeah. maybe it's not that writing is therapy. It's that it has therapeutic benefit. Um, yeah. Makes you Absolutely. feel better or, and there's some value. There's like, I think real deep, value in just looking at things carefully and mm -hmm. you were talking earlier about how a lot of people are scared to look <laughs> um you know it's like you don't want to see the boogeyman you don't want to look under the bed because you're terrified what might be down there but i think Absolutely. what might be you know what what i might be talking about when it comes to like the health benefits of this is that once you've kind of looked at it and confronted it you can move past it a little bit, or at least you're not walking around with all that fear anymore or as much. Yeah. Well, like I think it was like, like we tell, we tell stories as a, as a way of existing, you know, and a, as a way of like coping, you know, in the, in the world around us. So we're always telling stories. We tell each, we tell ourselves stories about ourselves. Right. But when you're writing fiction, you're telling the story of another person. So you're coming outside of yourself. And that's the most human thing to do is to connect with another person, whether that person is imaginary or not. And then you, suddenly you open up the scope of telling story about yourself to so suddenly telling story about another person, th but through, through yourself. <laughs> I, and I, I just think that that's, it's it's a connection thing again you're you're connecting to the world in an imaginative way but also in a way that reflects back into your sense of self um so it's it's nice like that so 10 years it yeah took, it took you to write this mm -hmm. it's a, it's a number one international bestseller so they say i, I i'm going to believe that <laughs> Like, yeah, because I was looking at it, I was like, does that mean it's the best-selling book in the world? I mean, like, honest question. <laughs> I'm, I don't think so. <laughs> this is a more popular book than the Bible. Uh, Louise yeah. Nealon, has, she has done it, ladies and gentlemen. 
The King James Bible is now number two. Um, <laughs> but a, a big debut success, let's put it that way, in the, in, the, in, the, um, in the realm of literature. Like, you must be pleased to know that the book is finding readers and people are liking it. And it took you a decade. And we touched on that. You know, we talked about the book's origin stories and this depression that you went through um, around the age of 18. But then there's all these other years. And I'm assuming all these other iterations that the book went through as you kind of worked your way towards its final form. And then you have to get it published and go through the rigmarole of, you know, finding an agent and doing all the business part of being a writer. Yeah. So can you, you know, I, I know you're not going to be able to get to all of it, but can you talk a bit more about the process of, of writing it and getting it to where you needed it to be and then getting it into print? Okay, so um, I, I went to university um, during my 20s, so I had the idea. Uh, I did English in, in college and I wasn't really writing that, that much. Oh, wait, so, wait um, so you went back to college? I went back to university, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I did four years there. Uh, and I wasn't really writing that much because uh, I was reading The Greats. <laughs> and I, I had this high concept idea. And I was like, oh, God, I'll just think about writing uh, instead of actually writing. And then I went up to Belfast to do a master's up there in creative writing. And that's really when it kind of took off so I had uh, four years of not really writing but like sketching things and then once I had uh, a year in Belfast to do my masters I began properly crafting scenes and tried different narration styles like it was originally in the third person I had Billy in a completely separate story and uh, I basically they con converged. All the characters were in different stories and they um, converged because I was writing short stories at the same time as writing the novel. Interesting. Uh, so I had this mess, absolute mess of a manuscript. And when I was in my master's, I was in a class of maybe 12 people. And this is the competition side coming out of me again. I wasn't, I thought that I was going to be the best in the class and I wasn't. And I was really angry about that. <laughs> but also it was a great learning experience because I, those, those, those people became my, my really close friends and really close readers and made me a better writer. And I got so much wisdom not from the teachers, actually, even though the teachers were great, but from the people in the class. Um, and they were my my go to's for for advice on the characters and the manuscript. And and then when I finished the master's, I was trying to be so I had jobs all through college um, I milked cows with my dad, notably. And <laughs> I <laughs> was also uh, a really terrible waitress um all over the place but i i met great people through doing it and so many life lessons and i really just really admire people in in the service industry and i really wish i could make a proper go at it and be a really good waitress <laughs> i feel like this but is this could I'm be the, this could be your second novel i want to read the louise <laughs> Nealon table waiting novel 
<laughs> I set a table on fire once. <laughs> Anyways. Uh, wait, and then wait. I worked at the bookshop. With the candles, like on the table? And a... Yeah, so I, I put a, a napkin over a candle, but then there was, it just went like burst into flames and there was an open kitchen. So I, I didn't realize that I set the table on fire. So I like turned away <laughs> with all these dishes and the chef was like, clovers. <laughs> <laughs> and then a customer from a different table had to come up and like, and put it out with his like bottle of water or whatever. Anyways, and then I was a bookseller as well. I worked in a bookshop and that was probably the job that suited me most. Um, but I eventually um, moved back from Belfast to home um, where I milked very occasionally, but mostly um, took the time to to write. And I, I wrote a short story, entered it into a competition like the way that you'd you'd do the lotto i wasn't really expecting anything what was the story and I got email what was the story uh the story was called uh, what feminism is no one really remembers the title because it was just called the irish times reprinted it under the headline irish bad sex story um, <laughs> thank you <laughs> so irish mom, times yeah <laughs> so my mom was like on the phone to my aunties being like if you google louise nealon and bad sex it should come up <laughs> <laughs> You brought great joy and pride to your family. <laughs> to my family, yeah. Um, and then I got my agent through that, basically. My agent read that story in, in the Irish Times and she got in touch with me. I, I met her for coffee and she was basically like, you can do this for a living if you want. And I really didn't believe her, but uh, kind of went with it um, in the way that like, it was kind of like a date and you've no idea why the person fancies you. I had two short stories, one that I was happy with and one that I wasn't, and a mess of a manuscript. And I shared with her the idea for for the story and she got excited about it. And I was like, okay. And then she just said, if if you if you get this into shape, um, we can do this, this and this with it. And I was like, okay. Um, and so she was really instrumental um marianne is her name marianne gunn o'connor she's a great agent and uh probably she's the reason the book the book exists how it is in in its form now i probably would have gotten it out in the world eventually but she really gave me the the get up and go to actually get down to it and and get it together and um streamline it and uh in a presentable manner she was she was great so great not only like motivating you and i think you know just somebody telling you you're good at something and then somebody making it real like you know you can do this yeah. this is an actual thing this is not some sort of figment of your imagination um and then basically she becomes your your first reader you know your agent this is often how agents function or most of the time this is how they function um and that early editorial feedback. It's an intimate creative partnership. Yeah. Yeah. And she was really, really encouraging. And also she had, she had great connections. She's a really badass businesswoman. She's the only person I know who has a positivity bias. As she, she's able to see opportunities where people don't. And she was able to sell um, the novel before the pandemic hit 
which was really um lucky and she she's just all these um great connections but also she's very creative um and that's something that i don't think is common in in the business world um she's just i was i was incredibly lucky to have crossed paths with paths with her so as you're saying all this i'm having like this uh self-critical inner you know kind of monologue about the fact that i don't have positivity bias i can't say that i do i guess (laughs) to make sure nobody does nobody does i have to i have to apologize to you for not being the second person you've ever met with a positivity bias (laughs) it's okay yeah well but that's a you know this is Again, like there are lots of kind of lessons packed into the stories that you're telling me. You know, it's about submitting the story to the competition, even though it feels like the lotto. What happens if you don't do that? What happens to your life if you don't do that? If you don't say, well, I'm going to put my name in the hat. Yeah, I mean, the odds are that nothing will happen. But what if something does? Look at you now. Number one international bestseller. I mean, come on. (laughs) Uh, You know, and so there's that lesson. And then I think the lesson, too, is that nobody does anything on their own, even though writing is this solitary thing, you know, in the popular perception. And, you know, so much of the labor really is done by you and you alone in front of your keyboard or your notebook or whatever it is. But once you get past that point of composition, or at least the first or second draft, if you want to make a career of it and if you want to get yourself into print, you, you will need help. Um, a lot of help. And so I think that's instructive. Um, this story about you and this agent who has helped to launch you and has given you a foothold in publishing and who saw something in you that you did not necessarily see in yourself, you know, artists, artists need, I should point out, sorry, go on. I I was just going to say artists need, you know, we need champions, um, in in order to survive. Yeah. Yeah. And I should say as well, like Marianne, definitely was not the only one who who propped me up when I needed propping up like my mom um she's the one that kind of twisted my arm to apply for the masters in Belfast um and the reason I went there was it was the only one that was still accepting (laughs) applications so that was lucky that narrows it down like yeah (laughs) absolutely um and then there was my secondary school English teacher as well like my high school English teacher who she's the reason I went to uh Trinity like she's the reason I wanted to go to college there because she did English in Trinity and I looked up to her so much and she's the first person who told me that I was like able to write that I was able to storytell you know and I was so vulnerable back then and uh, she's the first person I mentioned in in my acknowledgements because she's a writer as well and um, I think that like having teachers like that who go above and beyond to like empower their students um, especially in a creative way is just uh, that's like incredible so you join an illustrious line of guests on this show who have pointed to a teacher in their youth who was the first person to tell them that they could write and I had that too when I was in seventh grade I remember it you remember these things and 
Like people, yeah. this it makes me think that we should all pay more sincere compliments. It's something I don't do enough. It's not don't yeah. don't be phony about it. You can't just be throwing them around just to be not you know fake nice. Like it's <laughs> got to be real. Willy nilly. Yeah, yeah. But <laughs> if if you genuinely admire something about somebody, or even if you're jealous of somebody. Because people love it when you're jealous of them, right? They're like, ooh, tell me more. <laughs> you know, like yeah. it's tied to what yeah. we were talking about earlier. But like, my God, we are all so fragile and uh, wondering where we fit. Every single one of us practically that uh, who doesn't love a compliment? And it means so much. And I think especially when you're a kid and an adolescent and it's like, just tell me, tell me what I'm good at, please. It, you know, it, it is maybe not surprisingly, but it's, it's notably common that people who go yeah. on to write and publish had some teacher in their youth who told them that they were a good writer. And honestly, yeah. I sometimes wonder if my science teacher had been like, you know what, you would make a great surgeon. I probably would have pursued that. I'm just like, just tell me what to do. I have no idea who I am. You know, like define yeah, me for myself. You're so, yeah, you're so impressionable at that time as well. That it can go either way. Yeah. Absolutely. Like, cause I had a, I had a teacher in school who really like took a dislike to me cause I was quite, um, I was like a big nerd, but like really wanted to impress and especially in English. And I g gave these big long winded answers. Do you know when they ask you to read out your response to the text or whatever? And like one student would be like, like a sentence. And and then they'd ask me and I'd be there for like like 10 minutes <laughs> to the point where she'd have to like interrupt me and be like, oh, Jesus, it's not all about you. And she she marked me down on, on my essays loads um, to a point where like I I was like crying at home and like I really I doubted myself. And it was I was at that point when I had a change in teacher and she kind of like saw saw me as like I don't think she actually saw me as annoying I think that teacher saw me as annoying but she she kind of just saw the energy there and she was like okay maybe don't speak for like 10 minutes in class but definitely write that much and definitely like um she had way more patience you know and um to to the point where like I really owe her a lot because it could have gone either way you know mm. She probably recognized herself in you. I mean, you were authentically enthused. You cared, you know, and you're, you're to be forgiven if you're 16 years old and a little bit long-winded because you're like geeking out over a book. I mean, that's kind yeah. of what you want. So I think maybe that teacher just recognized, like the first teacher, the one who marked you down, I think misapprehended your enthusiasm <laughs> for some sort of... Uh, character flaw or like you know you, you wanting to <laughs> be a, you wanting to be a know-it-all and the second teacher just recognized that you love books and writing yeah and I'm really good friends with her now like we have a really like great relationship like we like have coffee and stuff and like send each other books still so it's and if my 18 year old self or 16 year old self knew that at the time of meeting her like that because she was my god back then and when I dropped out of college she actually sent me uh, a message being like do you want to meet for coffee and that was like the hand of god coming down <laughs> you know right. and uh, she was so generous in 
having coffee with me and being like, well, well, like, where do you want to go from here? And she was the first person that I sent chapters of the novel to. And I'm just so grateful to her for that. Wow. That's a that's a teacher for you. Yeah, absolutely. You know, most teachers just kind of like once you're out the door, they're like, okay, on to the next, you know. Yeah. (laughs) But she cared enough to to see where you were going. And uh, that's ideally how it should be, you know, cared about you as a person. Mm. Um, I want to ask you about the word culture, which I had to Google. (laughs) (laughs) I had to Google this because I mean, I kind of, I thought I, I thought I had it and then I'd wondered about, you know, I I second guess myself and then I, I'm glad that I looked it up, but I will have you think it was, um, I didn't realize that it had like a rural, I, I was thinking it had something to do with somebody who was like really like culturally either one, one way or the other, like really culturally adept or not. I don't know. I was confused, you know, cause it had that, the, the, the sound, you know, culture, it had the word culture embedded in it. Yeah, so yeah. I looked it up just to make sure I was clear, but why don't you for listeners tell us what culture means in the Irish vernacular? Right. So um, there's a big divide between the city and and rural um, population. So if you live in the city, you're a city slicker. But um, there's three types of people in in rural Ireland and um, they would be uh, townies who, who live in towns, boggers who live in the bog and culchies and, and culchies live in villages in Ireland, um, small parishes, uh, and they're kind of looked down upon um, by city slickers as being very provincial and a bit naive. Um, so there's a, there's a, um, a, a specific date, uh, the 8th of December, um, where Colchis come up to Dublin for the Christmas shopping and that's that's a day for um, people to be kind of like forgiving of the naivety of um, these country bumpkin idiots who who don't know how to navigate uh, the their the environs of of the city and are really just safe at home in in their villages where everything is is familiar and they can go to mass and pick up. They're they're shopping and and say hello to people that they they know by name, so that's what that's what a culture is. They're they're someone who are from small villages in Ireland, usually a farming background, who um are kind of uh very provincial and a bit naive. Well, you know, I don't think I need to point this out to you, but it should be said that if these uh, city slickers are are uh in a mood to draw distinctions and to take pride in the fact that they have all of this cosmopolitan knowledge, it works both ways. Why don't they come out to the, to the village and and help you birth a calf or whatever it is, you know, like, let's see them milk some cows. I think that, uh, (laughs) you know, they might look very much lost in those activities. Right. So I don't know. Same dynamics exist here too. I mean, uh, there's really, I maybe maybe to a degree that exceeds, uh, the way that it used to be a class divide between urban and rural, um, not just a cultural divide, but you know, if you really draw like the way that population 
patterns have um, materialized here in the States, at least, you know, you have all these people and all this young, like educated, um, you know, all these, all these young educated people kind of swarming into big cities and smaller towns and more rural areas, losing, losing young people, losing population numbers. And um, I think there's, I mean, there's a lot to unpack. I don't want to talk in too simple a terms, but I do think that that a lot of the tensions that exist between city slickers and culchies or boggers or whatever you want to call it um, has to do with those trends. I mean, I, and it seems like they exist that way in Ireland as well. Absolutely. Is that that's the way it's yeah, moving? You know, similar. yeah. Um, I fantasize about living on a farm. And in particular, in like the north of England or in Ireland, I love border collies. I used to have one. Do you have border collies on your farm? Yeah, we have two. Oh. Me too. Okay. Yeah. Well, if I come to Ireland, I'm going to have to come pet your dogs and say hello because they're the <laughs> well, best. Well, Molly won't pet you. Or Molly won't pet you. <laughs> you. Don't be able to pet Molly because she runs. She runs away from humans. She does like. She's very much like just a work dog yeah 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 so she she's no interest in in physical affection she's getting better she whereas ted, like is, ted is a big gobshite De- ted is actually immortalized in in the dog in the book called jacob oh okay. who uh, he he just fucks up on a colossal colossal level all of the time and never does his job right but is really spoiled and like so ted we we had Ted's great grandfather in our family. So he comes from a line of sure. of border colleagues. And he knows his lineage. He he must do. He must he must know that he we, like we'll never get rid of him because he he just he, he's just very comfortable in his um in his lineage and his his heir to the the throne on on the on the grass. Are they? Are they? <laughs> what, what do they look like? Are they black and white borders? Are they merle? Like what? What's the coat? So uh, Molly is uh, she's she's black and white, and there's a bit of husky in Ted, so he's um, a bit brown. So he's black, white, and brown, okay. um, and very very handsome in a way that like a man would be handsome. But even if he let himself go, you know. Like, there's no way that he couldn't be unhandsome. Even if he has a bit of a belly on him, he, he's just really good genes, you yeah. know? I wish I like, I wish yeah. I was that guy. I got to work so hard. I'm, you know, I'm, everyone wishes that they were that guy. Yeah, just like I want to be that person who, like, ages and you're like, yes, yes. Like, they look fantastic. But, like, I take, like, a picture of myself. I take a selfie at the wrong angle, and it's like it ruins my day. I'm just like, ugh. Yeah. You know? <laughs> uh, but okay, I'm I'm jealous of your dogs and I'm jealous of like, you know, at least this idealized version of farm life that I have in my head. I know because a friend of mine is a farmer and has been his entire career that it's extremely difficult work. Um, yeah. It's, uh, you're never off the clock really. And the physical labor of farming, I guess it might vary a little bit from farm to farm depending on what you're, exactly what you're doing. But my friend who I just saw not too long ago was describing to me the physical toll that it takes on the body to farm once you get to our age, which, you know, we're still relatively young. I'm in my 40s. But he was just describing how his friend, like, gets up out of a chair and is just like, you know, and he's he's got to, like, struggle because his back is so messed up. And yet he'll still be able to do all of this incredible labor physically because his body's so used to just kind of going through the motions. But 
I don't know. It yeah. just, uh, it, that sort of took some of the shine off the diamond for me. I was like, okay, now I'm feeling better about not, not having a gentleman's farm. This is a, this is hard yeah. work. It's not something you just like, you just go there and the dogs all come, you know, gather around you and you head out to the pasture to herd sheep. It's not that simple. No. Okay. No. Okay. And and you're you're exactly describing my dad getting up from a chair when when you're describing your your friend. Only my dad is in his 60s now, so it's a it's a young man's game, he says. Oh, yeah. But he, he can also never imagine retiring because that would be giving up. <laughs> but it's great um it's a great job for an older man as well because he can kind of do as much as he wants and my brother's on the farm as well and we have a couple of other guys so he can delegate and and still be part of it where and do as much as he can you know so Andy has you to sit on the sidelines and do nothing oh god absolutely <laughs> not yeah that's that's the whole that's where the whole like anxiety of productivity came in as well and because I live in a space that's so focused towards productivity and and getting things done and so practical uh whereas my day is very uh it's just the complete antithesis of that and that was sometimes frustrating um but frustrating for who you or or your dad or both both yeah yeah i was just gonna say i think that i think that i'll a lot of times that that's why a good day writing feels so good is because there's so many bad days where like if you can just I can come down on myself because you just feel like such a failure you look back yeah. at your day and like what did I do I just kind of sat here and wrote a bunch of shit that's never going to be you know it's never going to see the light of day it doesn't even make any sense you know like yeah. but that's the work you know and it's I think for people who have more conventional jobs you know and by comparison just about any job seems conventional when you compare it to you know sitting in front of a computer and staring at a flashing cursor all day long and um you know so people can have a heart my you know I've been through the same thing with my family like what are you doing all day and yeah. But you're just sitting there and I'm like, yeah, but you have to just sit there, you know, like you have to like yeah. have the space to get lost, you know, basically. Like this, this is the work. The work is doing nothing. Yeah. The work is right. sitting here. Right. And my dad's just like, do something. Yeah. He's like, I've been up since 5 a.m. I have, uh, you know, I don't know what, I, I wouldn't even know what, what kind of farmer is your dad? Like, what is he growing? He's a dairy farmer, he's a dairy farmer so he, he milk, milks cows. Yeah, he's like, I've milked 75 cows this morning. I've got uh, enough milk to provide the entire village with, uh, you know, milk, you know, and you, meanwhile, you're sitting there, like, staring at your computer, like, slightly cross-eyed <laughs> for six hours. <laughs> well, hey, listen, it, listen, it takes all kinds, and you have memorialized the farm and the farm life beautifully in your book, which, like, as you said, your father is pleased with, so you're doing something for the farm. You're, you're uh, immortalizing it, you know, and I, I really enjoyed this book, and I mean it when I say it, uh, it reads easily and that's high praise because I think that hard writing yields easy reading more often than not. And you've done the work. Um, and I'm just glad we got a chance to do this one for the book club and, and spotlight it because I love, I love college novels and campus novels and novels about youth. Uh, and this one hits all those notes, but it also does some things that are new and very unique to it. And it's a very like, it's a deeply wise novel for a, a 
book written by someone so young. So c- congratulations to you for that. And um, I'm excited to see what you come up with next. I hope it doesn't take a decade, selfishly. But if it does, we'll wait. <laughs> like, are you, are you at work on another one? Yeah, yeah. Currently at work with um, with book two. And it's going okay. Like, it's not, like, it's not, yeah, it's, I'm tentatively excited about it. And who, uh, whose dream, so... whose dreams did you pilfer this time? For the idea for this? <laughs> no dreams. None. No dreams no, anymore. <laughs> nothing, nothing supernatural. Uh, and you live, and you're no. living in the, the same uh, place that you grew up, right? So you're in... Um, what I'm imagining is like a bucolic, beautiful Irish setting that, you know, is... it really is. It's gorgeous. Um, yeah. But I'm I'm moving to Belfast again um, at the end of this month, actually. Oh, you are. So, uh, I, yeah, I'm really excited uh, to give my parents a bit of breathing room. Right. Um, but, yeah, I'm 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 really, really um, lucky to be where I am. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to have to Google County Kildare and, uh, like I, I'm so, I like, it is not hyperbole to say that I'm obsessed with border collies. Like when I can't sleep at night, I go onto the internet and just look at pictures of these dogs. Um, and I don't mean to, wow. my, my dog who is not a border collie is behind me. I don't mean to, uh, I love her dearly, but she's not a border collie. I hope she doesn't feel like I'm being unfaithful, but they're just i don't live on a farm i live in a city so it's hard to have a collie here uh yeah but, but one day this is my theory of I'm, one day i'm going to have another border collie because i loved uh, my dog that i had in my 20s uh merlin he was a great dog and so smart amazing uh yeah but but even like people and their dogs are are really like the culture of even indoor dogs is really foreign to us because like our dogs are just outside all of the time sure. and like the fact that you can't let your dog outside your house without a leash in the city is just so foreign to us um and that's that's really crazy where do your dogs but... sleep you got like a, a kennel or some sort of like dog house or something or just they out find somewhere like they just they hang out in the shed they're fine like but they've got shelter um, if it, they've got shelter if it's like snowing or something Absolutely, yeah, okay. yeah. But we don't we don't have a specific like kennel for them or, or or whatever. It's it's very much they look after themselves. They work for their food. <laughs> and and those dogs too. <laughs> they I mean, wait, do they herd cattle? They must they go out and herd cattle, right? They're supposed to. They're supposed to. Yeah. Well, yeah. I read um, somewhere. Ted, Ted doesn't. Yeah, that's because Ted's got that husky in him. He's like uh, he wants to mush. He wants yeah, to like pull a absolutely. sleigh. But uh, I yeah. read somewhere that border collies on a working ranch will like run an average of like 75 miles a day or something like that. You know, they can at oh, least. God. So they, these dogs can, if yeah. you know, they can yeah. really go. Ah. Yeah, I don't, I don't think their, their mileage is up that much, but um, I could be, I could be, they, maybe they do. I could be exaggerating this. My love of these dogs is so intense. I'm, I'm giving them super dog powers. <laughs> they can run. <laughs> across the entire state and back before sundown they're incredible (laughs) um what is the new novel about can you give us a hint i don't want i know people get superstitious about this so i don't want to you know yeah no i'm not i'm not talking about it yeah 
Sorry. No. I ha- listen, it's <laughs> but my... But it's like, it's like a really like... Um, do you know when like people are, are pregnant and they don't want to say yet? Yes, yes. You know, it kind of feels like that. It's like, I'm not sure if it's a viable pregnancy yet. Okay. <laughs> Beautifully put. It's my job to ask, but I, I accept the <laughs> answer. Uh, it's been great to meet you and to talk with you. Congratulations on the success of Snowflake. I will wish you nothing but the best on book number two. Um, I hope it, it, it all works out. Good luck with the move to Belfast. Uh, I, you know, I don't know what's going to happen there, but I assume it will be fun. And uh, hopefully when this, you know, this second book um, finds its way into the world, we can talk again. Yeah, and thanks so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. All right, there you go. That is Louise Nealon. Her debut novel is called Snowflake, available now from Harper Books. It is the official September pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club, number one international bestseller. Come on. You can find Louise on Twitter. Her handle over there is at Louise underscore Nealon. Once again, the novel is called Snowflake. Go get your copy right now. The Other People podcast is offered freely. If you want to support the show, you can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash otherpplpod. If you want to email me, if you have thoughts that you would like to share, the email address is letters at otherppl.com. The Other People podcast has its own YouTube channel. Don't forget to go subscribe over there. If you want to join the TNB book club, you can do that at thenervousbreakdown.com. Just click on book club in the menu bar. The Other People podcast has its own app. Did you know that? It has its own official app, the Other People with Brad Listy app. It's free. Go get it wherever you get your apps. If you want to get Other People merch, if you want to get a t-shirt, you can do that over at otherppl.com, the show's official website. You'll see a t-shirt in the left sidebar. Click on that t-shirt. Go buy a t-shirt. These are very soft, comfortable t-shirts. I'm very picky about t-shirts. I like these t-shirts. They're good t-shirts. Get a t-shirt. What do you think? God in public fully branded. Got some good uh, conversations in the pipeline, you guys. I don't know exactly who's coming up next. But I'm just looking through the list here. I've been busy. I've got a lot of interviews coming up, too, including some big ones. I've got so much reading to do. I don't mean to complain, but I mean, Jesus. It's overwhelming. The speed. It's like, uh, you know, drinking from a fire hose. But... It's all for a good cause. I'll talk to you soon. (laughs) 